0: He's a retired law enforcement officer from the Washington, D.C. metro area. He's overcoming and recovering from years of violence and trauma. He's here to share his experience working gangs and his career in law enforcement and much more on the Law Enforcement Today show. Welcome to the Law Enforcement Today radio show. I'm your host, my name's John J. Wiley. In addition to being a radio broadcaster, I'm a retired police sergeant. download our free app. If you enjoy the Law Enforcement Today podcast, do me a big favor, tell a friend, and if you're able, if you got a few moments, leave an honest review and rating. But most importantly, tell a friend or two or three. Calling us from the Washington, D.C. area of Northern Virginia, we have Merritt Castle on the phone. Merritt is a retired law enforcement officer. He's a podcaster. He's got quite the interesting story. Merritt, thanks so much for being a guest on the show. Very much appreciated
1: i'm honored to be here thank you so much for having me
0: it's good to have you here and before i forget i'm really working hard at getting better at doing this thank you for your service it's very much appreciated
1: well thank you for yours Uh, i know a little bit of the background so regardless it goes right back to you so appreciate it
0: now mary is retired law enforcement we'll get into that in a minute but you, right now, you're, you've got your hands on a lot of different things. And one of the things you do is you have a podcast. It's You can be found on the Law Enforcement Today podcast network or LET podcast network. Go to letradioshow.com, the Be Heard tab. Click LET podcast network. You'll find it there. It's called Brownie in Blue.
1: What is Brownie in Blue? So, Brownie and Blue, just break it down. Brownie, I'm from El Salvador, initially born there, raised in the U.S., Latin, uh, and so Brownie is that, and then Blue, in Blue, I was in law enforcement for the past 20 years, retired, so in Blue is in law enforcement, so Latin man in law enforcement, pretty much, and that's how it started, and that's the podcast.
0: By the way, I love... I absolutely love, one of the things about this show, is Hollywood puts out these stereotypes of what cops are like and what they look like, and you busted many of those just by having the name Merrick Castle, and you're Latino.
1: (laughs) You caught on to that, huh? I think that's
0: awesome, because you know what? I can't. I'll be honest with you. I'm an Irish Catholic guy. When you talk about the stereotypical cop, that would be me. Some people say I'm a knuckle-dragging Neanderthal, and I'm okay with that. But when people bust stereotypes, I
1: love it. Well, so you know what's interesting about it, Jay, is, so I, like I said, I was born in El Salvador during a war-torn country, uh, Civil War at the time, in 78, and when I came here, I was actually an orphan, so I was adopted by a American family. Uh, white american family and so when i was adopted i was five years old so my original name would have fit this stereotype which would have been jorge alberto ruiz but when i came here my mother her and uh my father uh changed my name to what it is today is Merritt cassell so yeah i get the exact same thing even from other latin folks they're like what that's your name <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll bet what wait a second that doesn't fit
0: exactly that's what's really great about it and coming from first of all el salvador war torn at the time i'll be honest with you i don't know much about it i remember hearing stories in the late 70s i remember newscasts but the coverage in the united states about what was happening there really wasn't very complete
1: right and and to be honest with you i didn't learn about the history until i got older when I started digging into it and my adoptive mother, my mother kept a lot of news clippings and I've read those news clippings and I've also watched some movies and I've also been back to El Salvador in 2007 uh, to go to the orphanage and also uh, the hospital that I was born into. So learning the history there and just part of it is really interesting because obviously the U S had a stake in El Salvador civil war because at the time, Communism, the Soviet Union, and just socialism, that whole movement was trying to move up through Central and South America and trying to get a stronghold there. So part of that was in El Salvador. So in order to, in a sense, eradicate that, uh, the U.S. got involved and they had people down in El Salvador to kind of keep an eye on things to make sure that that wasn't going to get a foothold there. So it was really a coup over the government, and that's where the Civil War started, and trying to go from democratic to socialism and the U.S. wanted obviously not that uh, to happen at the time and so that's how I was quote unquote found. Um, My mother's sister was a worker for I guess like a contracting company or business that worked with the U.S. government to provide some type of aid to El Salvador and she knew that my mother wanted to adopt and had certain criterias. And I was found and everything got pretty much started from that point forward. And I came here in 1982 as a five-year-old.
0: Let's fast forward to your adult years. You wound up joining a major police department outside of Washington, D.C. in northern Virginia. About what year was that? 2001. And how old were you then?
1: Uh, I was 21, going on 22, so fresh out of college.
0: Well, I remember going to academy 20, turned 21 in the academy and, you know, being on the street at 21 years of age, right by far turned 22 and you're trying to handle lifelong family problems and you're I couldn't really maintain a relationship with a woman for more than like 3 weeks at a time cuz I was such a knucklehead.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's exactly right. I mean, it's funny. I just had this conversation with somebody, a friend of mine, and I was telling them I was trying to get them to understand, as a 21-year-old male, right, We, what, what do they say, male men uh, mature a lot slower than women do. So here I am going on one of my first calls, cut loose, and it was a domestic violence. It was a domestic violence uh, call, and the woman said, the man hit her. Here they are. They have kids in the house, young kids. And as a 21-year-old, I've never dealt with anything like that uh, in the sense of just telling two grown people and the application of the law and then also trying to tell them how to, in a sense, act and live with each other. And it was just a very eye-opening experience for me and really, um, really drove home the importance and just kind of like the command presence. You know, I hate to, I hate this phrase in a sense, but in a way, you kind of had to fake it till you made it.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. And they could tell you were a rookie. They could tell just by looking at the uniform in Baltimore. Oh, yeah. I was razor-sharp creases. You were young. You were in shape. You were skinny. You didn't have mustard stains on your uniform shirt and all that stuff. And they go, oh, you're brand new, aren't you? Like, And you're trying your best not to look it. But
1: they could tell. Oh, oh yeah. That's definitely the case. I mean, for us in the department I worked for, they, they knew that you were a rookie because on your sleeve – on your shirt you either had what they called a the chicken wing which said that you were a pfc and if you didn't have that yet then they knew you are you didn't even have you know your first couple of years on the job yet
0: isn't that funny how they got you pegged?
1: oh yeah yeah it's, a, so it's, it's amazing, amazing but you know what that's that's what happens
0: It sounds to me like your story is quite similar in some ways, in the policing ways, that when I graduated from the police academy, we didn't have a choice of where we were assigned. And when I drove to the new district I went through, it was a huge shock because the amount of crime, the amount of violence, the amount of quality of life issues family disturbances drug abuse drunkenness alcoholism all that stuff was overwhelming and nothing prepared me for that
1: there's nothing the only way to prepare for that is to actually do it and the academy as you know the academy is just in a it's a very sterile environment they can Try to at least inoculate you with certain situations and how to apply law, and then also how to de escalate situations by what, uh, when I went through, it was called verbal judo. Absolutely. We're going to take a and short
0: break. We're talking with Merrick Castle. He's a retired law enforcement officer. This guy's got a very interesting story. He's also a podcaster as well. Don't go anywhere. We will be right back. One of the most frequent questions we see is. Where can I find great podcasts? Do you have any suggestions? Yes, we do. So we decided to start our own podcast network on Law Enforcement Today. That's right. You can find top podcasts about law enforcement on our website and our free app. Go to letradioshow.com. Click the Be Heard tab, and there you'll find the L.E.T. Podcast Network. We'll be adding more podcasts from first responders and more. Again, to find the Law Enforcement Today podcast network, go to letradioshow.com and click on the Be Heard in our menu or download our free app today at letradioshow.com. This portion of the Law Enforcement Today show is brought to you by Switched On Life. Train the mind and the body will follow. In his riveting debut memoir, Switched On, The Heart and Mind of a Special Agent, Eric Caron provides a true glimpse into the making of a special agent and life behind a badge. Get more details about the book, the podcast, and more at SwitchedOnLife.com. That's SwitchedOnLife.com. Return conversation with Merrick Castle on the Law Enforcement Today Show, retired police officer from the actually retired sergeant, I believe, from a major metropolitan police department outside of Washington, D.C. in Northern Virginia. Before we end break, Mayor, you brought up a great term from my past, and the term you started talking about was verbal judo. Please continue with what you were saying.
1: Yeah, I think it was in reference to the academy and how it, the academy is just a sterile environment. They do teach you de-escalation, where they try to call it as verbal judo, which is really just trying to use your mouth to get out of or to de-escalate a situation that could possibly be a violent encounter, whether physical or somebody using a weapon or whatever the case is. Um, obviously that's not always the case, but you know, this was also in reference to how the academy itself, that environment is not commensurate with what happens when you get onto the street. And there's a academy way, and I'm sure you've heard this, there's the academy way, and then once you get out on the street, the first thing your FTI or FTO says to you is there's the street way and the real way and there's the academy way, so I'm going to teach you the real way.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. A simple example of that is, you know, we try to be thorough in our reports. And when you're brand new at the academy, you take a long time. And next thing you know, your sergeant be talking to you on the radio. Hey, the calls are backing up on your post. you got to go handle them. And we didn't want our side partners on the next post to handle calls in our post because that meant their post was vacant and someone had to handle calls in their post. And next thing you know, it's out of the district and out of the sector and all that stuff. So we didn't want that. And so you learn to multitask quickly. That verbal judo thing, one of the ways I try to explain to people is they see video of officers and the officer sounds rough. The officer sounds rude. The officer sounds sometimes abrasive. And what we were taught was you would use language and verbal skills to try to get someone off their game from an offensive posture to a defensive posture so you wouldn't have to use force. That was the main thing. And sometimes we were rude about it. It wasn't that we were mean people. It was designed to prevent it from going to the next level.
1: Exactly. That's exactly what it is. I mean, it's, it's you're your preventing a situation where somebody could be even in crisis – Or you don't know what you're running into you don't know who you're dealing with and one of the things that I really learned about verbal judo because really all that is is communication and if you are high-strung and if you are hyper vigilant all the time and you think of everybody as a criminal or as us against them then you are all you as an officer from what I've seen you're the one that other officers don't want you to be on their call right because you're the one that's going to make this situation worse. And so the person that is calm, even when somebody is raising their voice, they've even had studies where once you, once you raise your voice or you go to the level of whatever this person is going to, then that's when that escalation is going to pretty much carry into some type of violent encounter as opposed to, yeah, you can be mad, somebody can be upset, yelling at you, cursing at you, and you can just come in there and just start, listen, what can I do for you? How can I talk to you? And you start talking calm, just naturally. Naturally, in communication, most people will sit there and they'll try to come meet you at your level instead of you meeting them at their level.
0: So we're gonna take you back to your early days in law enforcement. New out of the academy, and if you missed the early part of the interview, Merritt Castle is his name. He was an orphan from El Salvador and was adopted by a couple in the United States. That's why he's got the name Merritt Castle, and he busts every stereotype. When you you think of a certain look of an individual based on a name, you're going to get this wrong. So I'm sure that presented some challenges for you as well.
1: It did. I mean, just in law enforcement, because... Well the one thing is most people even latin folks don't even they peg me as I I've been called everything I've been called Samoan, Hawaiian, Saudi Arabian, Puerto Rican, all like every race I've even if I have a hat on most people think I'm mixed black and white or whatever the case is. So I kind of fit a lot of different <laughs> stereotypes, but the problems in law enforcement with that isn't really the aspect of what i look like but it's more so that they just assumed that i spoke spanish at the time and i didn't and so i was put in a high latin population and part of that also is other latins who did peg me as latin they started speaking spanish to me right off the bat and when i was a young kid at five years old you only know so much spanish and then when i came here i assimilated to the english language and I wanted to fit in. So I didn't know Spanish. I knew book Spanish, but that's not real Spanish. And when I came on the department, I, one of the things that I wanted to do was to learn my native language. And they had an, a language immersion program, and I was actually picked to go to it, um, surprisingly. So I used that for a six-month assignment, and I was you know, fortunate to go. And that actually bridged a lot of the gaps that was what i would consider kind of like a kind of a wall um within the community that i policed and i will tell you this one quick anecdote i was walking into a 7-eleven on my beat and this hispanic gentleman was with his young kid who was about eight years old and i'm sitting there i get out of the car i go to the door i'm in front of them i hold the door open and the dad says, Muchismo gracias, and I saw, and I said it back to him. I said, you know, no problema, muchismo gracias. And then he and then his little and then his son walks past me and stares at me, literally just staring at me from the time he saw me to the time he passed me to the time he walked into the store. And at the end I was in line and this dad in Spanish tells me my son, mi hijo, nunca has never seen, okay, a person or a Latino in uniform. And he made me realize how important it was for the community to see, in a sense, the same, uh, same type of face. And not only that, but when I spoke Spanish, it was, it was almost like he, I could see him deflate, where he was like, you know, the stress was relieved from him. It was actually pretty interesting.
0: I'll bet it was. And it, here's a, an interesting similarity. I grew up in a Navy family. I was born in New Jersey. And my grandparents were immigrants from Ireland. I am the palest guy you'll meet. My, my dermatologists, they laugh at me because I'm in there every six months having stuff cut off. But we moved to Rota, spain when I was probably about a year and a half old. My dad's Navy... Uh, career sent them there. And to go to preschool, all you had to do was be potty trained and they spoke Spanish. So by the time I left Spain at five, I was fluent in Spanish. When I moved mm. back to the United States, we never used it again. Now, I'm like a stumbling, bumbling idiot and I know nothing. <laughs> I mean, I can pick up little bits and pieces here and there, but my father-in-law who passed away many years ago, his dad was a Panama Canal police officer. And he was uh, from Connecticut, and I call it the area he's from was middle upper class suburbia. And he spoke fluent Spanish, and people looked at him was this big, tall, lanky guy, uh, very much the, the epitome of what you think of a gringo. And when he spoke perfect Spanish, people were shocked. We are talking with. Merrick Castle, retired law enforcement officer, also a podcaster, uh, an an immigrant, an orphan. Man, the story is phenomenal. We'll get into that when we return. We'll be right back. Do you want to learn how to be a true, effective leader who could bring a team to the next level? Start by reading my book, A Beginner's Guide to Leadership by Eddie Molina, available on Amazon and on my website, eddiemolina.com. That's E-D-D-I-E-M-O-L-I-N-A.com. This is Law Enforcement Today's Show. Return to conversation with Merritt Castle, a retired law enforcement officer from the DC metro area, large department. I know the area very well. It's in Northern Virginia. And it's also uh, an orphan, an immigrant from El Salvador and adopted by an American family. And just quite the interesting story. And if you're a podcaster. Your podcast is Brownie in Blue. You get it at letradioshow.com. Click on the Be Heard tab. LET Podcast Network you'll find it right there or just do a Google search for Brownie in Blue. I happen to know a little bit of your backstory and you talked earlier about being adopted at five and your journey here from El Salvador. Part of your, your life's journey for lack of better words involves and almost every cop I know goes through a lot of trauma and violence whether it's inflicted upon them personally or just by witnessing it all the time. Uh, you had it both ways, didn't you?
1: I did. Um, you know, and it's it's interesting that you said that most cops that you've talked to or know has had that as well, whether it's been inflicted or they've dealt with it. So just quickly for me, when I came to this country, for one, I had to learn about a lot of trauma in the past few years, just going for personal um, things through personal stuff and going through intensives and therapy and things that have compounded from trauma that I experienced not only as a child, but even going through a 20-year career, law enforcement um, career. And so when I came to this country, I didn't realize that trauma started at the time when I was given up from my original birth mother at two years old into an orphanage because that trauma in itself sends messages to a child that you are not wanted um, and there's abandonment issues. And so even at that age with the brain developing, which I've learned, is that the frontal prefrontal cortex doesn't develop um, as quickly, and nor does it fully. Um, And so the limbic system, which is the back of the brain, which deals with fight, flight, or freeze, is, is really apparent. That's the survival mechanism. So that's where I started. And so then when I got adopted, I came to a country, obviously, whether it's you count it as little T trauma or big T trauma, that's, again, another trauma. I'm just transitioning into, hey, I'm transitioning into a world I don't know. I'm transitioning into a family. I have no clue who these people are. I don't know what they're about. I don't know anything. They don't look like me. They don't speak the same language. Nothing. So then you get into uh, the raising and the nurturing. So my mother, um, who is an incredible woman, she was married to my father, my adopted father, and he was an abusive man. So he was an abusive man. He worked for the Secret Service as well. So I came from a law enforcement background in that sense. And so, but he was a very abusive man. He had his own issues. And so he abused me as well, physically, and then emotionally um, as well, because I wasn't from him. And so being adopted, there are a few things that you have to recognize. You have to recognize that you're being loved, yes, by another family or by people that didn't, quote-unquote, biologically have you. But at the same time, some people may have issues with that. Like, he had an issue with the fact that it was my mom's decision to adopt and not his. So he went along with it. And so, therefore, whatever abuse I took was based off of the fact that I think, and I can only, based on conjecture, was based off of him feeling like I wasn't truly his. And they got divorced, so there was another there was another trauma and then I was sexually abused at uh, around nine years old, and there was more trauma that was placed on there and
0: that 's quite then, common with with men that's that's that 's one of the skeletons in a closet a lot of men don 't want to talk about that as children, many of them were sexually sexually abused, and also many of them were physically abused, and part of the whole And this is my amateur psychologist bit here. A big part for them is this idea that we're supposed to be able to defend ourselves and defend those who matter to us, and that we couldn't defend ourselves and protect ourselves from that happening, and that creates a conflict in our own psyche as we develop.
1: That's spot on, Jay. I mean, that is exactly what it is. Going into a deep dive of why I went into law enforcement, I always thought it was because of my mom. But then once I got into therapy, once I started learning about trauma, once I started learning about nurturing, once I started learning about the development of the brain and all these different things, it's exactly what you just said. The reason I got into law enforcement wasn't because I came from a law enforcement family. It, it was the reason was, is because as a young child, at no point could I ever protect myself. At no point could I ever protect my mother. At no point could I ever stop any abuses or any abandonments that happened to me? And so my whole development in becoming and getting drawn to law enforcement was to become a protector. And I think, I'll go even deeper, the reason that I became a protector was not to protect the people of the community, which is obviously that's the altruistic feel, but from the psychology point is, I was, I became that because now I could protect myself. Dude, that's that deep stuff.
0: That is really, for a guy like if you met me in person, you'd be like, you'd never have this conversation with me, ever. <laughs> I'm telling you. Because you look at me and go, oh, no, no, I'm not talking vulnerability and stuff with this guy, because he's not about that. But that also breaks one of the stereotypes that a lot of people have about law enforcement officers, because one of the things I hear all the time is that, these guys, I say, guys, men and women, uh, become cops because they were bullied as kids, they were abused as kids, and they want to get even.
1: That's such. B- yes, that is that that is a very that's just an easy way for people to just go ahead and write off what police are and why they do what they do. If anything, regardless of the abuse or the traumas, why would somebody then get into a position? even though they could quote unquote thwart their authority, which I haven't seen, at the same time be videotaped, be recorded, you know, and then now with them, you know, the narrative of I I hate the police, defund the police, spit at them, shoot them, kill them, all these different things. Why would somebody all of a sudden get into that profession when there's so many other ways to be able to I guess, thwart your authority if it's physical on the quote-unquote bullied kid. You know, that's that, that right there, it, it, is a, it is a misnomer. It is a horrendous stereotype, and I don't know where that came from. But, you know, in general, cops that I know, law enforcement officers that I've worked with side-by-side, side, regardless of their story, They get up every day and they wanted to go ahead and make a difference, whether it was in a person's life and what they dealt with on that day, or whether it was through whatever avenue, whether you were a detective, whether you were a supervisor, whatever the case is, there's always bad apples in every bunch. I don't care if you're a doctor, a dentist, a teacher, any profession has bad actors, but by by and large, if you take percentages of law enforcement men and women across this country and you take the interactions, I'm not talking about the cases that you see on TV. I'm talking about daily interactions, which is, I think, over 300 million a day. And you take that and you take those interactions and you pull the statistics of how many of those interactions are use of force incidences. It is literally minuscule when it comes to that the majority of everything that police do is building bridges with the community.
0: And so much of what we hear is dominated by the media. And when I say the media, that encompasses Hollywood, that encompasses the news media, that encompasses social media, print, radio as well, and I'm part of the media because I have a radio show. It's dominated by headlines, and it's dominated by what will get the eyeballs on this story the quickest, and the perfect example I come a the of time is when you look at stories involving police in the news, it's always the end first. It's always cop shoots man. It's never the 50 decisions that individual made that could have prevented it and made it not escalate to that point. We're talking with Merrick Castle, retired law enforcement officer also a podcaster, and much more. We're going to take a short
2: break. We will be right back. Want to fly somewhere? Looking for cheap flights or cheap tickets? absolute absolute cheapest prices on U.S. and international airline tickets and hotels. Call right now for prices so low they can't be published. Travel experts are here 24-7 to help. 800-451-8603 800-451-8603 800-451-8603 That's 800-451-8603
0: Conversation with Merrick Castle, retired law enforcement officer from Northern Virginia, the Washington, D.C. metro area. Also, he was an orphan, was an immigrant, and adopted from El Salvador by an American family, and went into law enforcement. He's also a podcaster, host of the Brownie in Blue podcast. Go to letradioshow.com, click Be Heard, click the LET podcast network, and find it right in there part of your career in law enforcement we all make steps everybody starts in what we call patrol and they learn basic policing and that's by the way you're the first ones for everything so you you kind of get thrown in the deep end you learn it all and then you gravitate towards different areas part of your career was in gang enforcement
1: Uh, how long did you do that two and a half years i was the sergeant for the gang unit for the department that i worked for
0: And when people say gangs, uh, and you're part of Northern Virginia, there is a gang that is very active, that is very high profile, and a lot of people really don't understand for political reasons, and I don't do partisan politics discussion on this show, but that gang was MS-13. Am I correct?
1: Yes, sir, you are. How bad of a problem
0: was MS-13 in your area?
1: Uh, As bad as it gets. When, When I say, when you ask bad, how bad, you know, that's, to the average person it's a relative term right and it, it, but to me and to the community they were a menace they're all over the news uh, for the region that I worked in we worked two cases that involved buried bodies of teenagers uh, in a park that was very pretty much a well-to-do area but the park itself was so big. That they felt and you know so confident that they could just go ahead and bury shallow graves and put these two bo- put these two bodies in there and then another case where and I, not to plug her show but Lisa Lane came and did a documentary here uh, for that and we I was I was on that to talk about one of the cases where another girl was lured from Maryland and killed for her possible involvement in something, having sex with one of the member's uh, boyfriends and, her, and the killing of that boyfriend. So yeah, it's a problem and it's a huge problem. During my time, I was fortunate enough to head to Costa Rica and I presented on MS-13 because at the time, MS-13 was so prevalent, not only in the Northern Virginia region, but in the D.C. area, whether it's in Maryland, D.C. or Virginia, we had the most membership of MS13 gang members outside of the state of California and outside of the country of El Salvador. I
0: think the other hot spot
1: is well,
0: I've had people on talking about uh, investigations of MS13 in California, but Long Island, New York has a huge problem.
1: Huge problem. We actually partnered uh some trainings with them where they came down and They shared information and vice versa. So, yeah, the MS-13 is very prevalent. And, you know, what most people don't understand is that MS-13 is not your average gang. I think most gangs, they have some incentive to either make money through drugs, through smuggling, and then you can see that through their organization. And I put that in quotes, organization, and you can see it through their cars, through how they spend the money, through how they're living their life and stuff like that, because that's the ultimate goal of whatever that illegal operation is. With MS-13, their leadership, which most people don't know as well, their leadership are all in jail in El Salvador. They're all in jail in El Salvador, but yet they're still calling the shots on what to do through the jails in El Salvador, which is insane, right? So the gangs up here, they're part of what they call cliques. Cliques are local factions of whatever set that you belong to. So if you're in Baltimore, I don't know any places in Baltimore. Maybe um, name me a place, Jay, and they'll call that the whatever place in Baltimore clique. And they also have what they call programs. So they have an East Coast program and a West Coast program. The East Coast program is really what it is it's all these cliques possibly working in unison, but there's no incentive. The incentive has nothing to do with what we think it is. You know, the symbolism of MS-13, the horns, the nails, when they go and kill somebody, they say that la vicia is coming for you, and that beast is Satan. And so most people don't realize that the gang itself, when they kill somebody, they truly believe that they are making a sacrifice to the devil and the beast that's going to really, in a sense, make the gang what it is. And so most people don't understand that. And that's why they have a lot of different ways on how you get stature within the gang is that they stab. So like if I was part of the gang and I ended up killing somebody for the gang, and then all of a sudden another Uh, a whole clique, which could be 10, 20, 25 people. I'd pass around that knife and they would all stab this one person that I just killed in order to document that they were part of this killing. And then that stature then presents to where now, instead of being whatever, a paseo, now they're a homeboy. And so that's that's their incentive. Their incentive is stature, it's not money, it's not drugs, it's not girls. Their incentive is really just fear.
0: It's it's totally different from what I'm used to. I, I, I worked Jamaican drug gangs, was my specialty, and in D.C. at the time, and in Baltimore, they were huge rivals, and they, they had what they called posses, and they even had, supposedly, members who were trained in guerrilla warfare in Cuba called jungleites, and they were uber-violent, but... The reality is, compared to what little knowledge I have of m s thirteen they don't hold a candle to the level of violence that these guys do
1: yep the the m s thirteen can I give you a a quick anecdote of how violent they are and the mentality sure so when they're in el so when they're in el salvador so they so the unit that i that I was part of and that I supervised these detectives were amazing, still are amazing. We partnered with the FBI CR7 squad, where all they do is investigate federally the way they can combat MS-13, and they were attached to us instead of us being attached to them. And so they would have a couple of agents with us, and they had an agent who had pretty much another guy, an intel guy from El Salvador, come, and he was just here from El Salvador, just seeing what we do, how we do things. And it was during the time we dug up two bodies in a park. And when we went to go dig these two bodies up, he was there. He was giving his kind of like insight what he sees in El Salvador. And when we dug these two bodies up, he said, that's it? That's all you have? And that was his reaction. And I asked him, why did you say that's it? And he says, in El Salvador, what they do is they start digging from one side, and then they go all the way, let's say, on a football field, let's say 30, 40 yards. And they dig up that distance. And then they stack bodies side by side in this mass grave. And then they cover it up. So he says when they go and dig up a body that they start from one end, and then they have somebody walk down to about the distance of where they think all the bodies are going to be lined up. And then then they start digging from that side to see if there's another body there. Merritt, we're going to have to be back
0: to talk more about that. In and of itself is an interesting conversation that most of us have no information about. Tell us about your podcast.
1: So my podcast, again, is Brownie in Blue. That's B-R-O-W-N-I-E in Blue. And it's there to give voices to law enforcement officers um, it deals with you know their views their insider take on what they see every day but it 's also deals with mental health and wellness and uh, different struggles that law enforcement officers and maybe their families go through and that 's
0: brownie in blue you can do a google search for brownie in blue podcast i 'll tell you the easiest way to find it just go to let dot com click the be heard tab let podcast network and you see a division of First Responder Podcast and others, and it's in the First Responder Podcast. You'll find it right there. Merrick Castle, thanks so much for all you've done. Thanks for your service, and thanks most of all for being guests on the show.
1: Thank you, I'm honored. Thank you so much, Jay.
0: I'd like to thank our guests so much for coming on the Law Enforcement Today radio show. The Law Enforcement Today radio show is a nationally syndicated radio show broadcast on numerous stations once a week and growing. If you enjoyed the podcast version of the show, please do me a big favor. Tell a friend. And if you're able, leave an honest review and or rating. I'll be back in just a couple days with a brand new episode of the Law Enforcement Today radio show and podcast. Until then, this is John J. Wiley. See ya.